0: This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org.
1: What I'm going to try to do today is give you what could be called an extensive postcard, one of those postcards you get from your friends from Europe, which they've written a little too much. It should have become a letter. Uh, It's overflowing. And I'm going to try to give you a postcard version of Aquinas on grace and for some of you who've studied him on this subject it may be uh, some repetition and for i think most of you it will be an initiation and it may be more information than is either useful or assimilable but i've given you a handout and given you places that you can go and read more about this in aquinas himself so that you could then as it were having to put your foot in the water here um, you know look at what aquinas says himself So I'm gonna start by talking about the challenges Aquinas is confronting as he develops a matured theory about grace and nature in the 13th century. And he's fundamentally reacting, you might say, against a background of three um, pressures or influences. The first is the general Western European medieval reception of the Augustinian heritage, meaning the extremely influential, vision of Saint Augustine on the matters of grace and free will which is a heritage which is decidedly anti-Pelagian and so Aquinas sees himself in some sense as responsible for being Augustinian or receiving Augustine and being anti-Pelagian but what does that mean? Now Pelagius had his career in Rome he was a Scottish or English monk who had drifted down to Rome and become acquainted with the societies of learning and aristocracy in Rome in the uh, late 4th century, and his career spans the era from around 390 to 418. Pelagius, interestingly, began a lot of his polemical writing against Augustine because he was one night in a Roman household when the Confessions was being read, and there's a famous line in there, which I can't quote from heart, where Augustine says essentially something like, Lord, give me the grace to will the things you will and the grace to do the things you wish me to do. And when Pelagius heard that read, he saw he thought that, that, that it was invoking the idea that grace suppresses or replaces human free will and that human nature is so fallen that grace has to do everything and nature can do nothing of its own. Now, in reaction to that, as often happens, he taught an almost converse position, which is that after the fall the loss of grace by our first parents and the ensuing catastrophe that is the fallen human race living out under the impetus of its own powers. Uh, Human beings, even after that fall, in fact, Pelagius is trying to reinstate a kind of optimism against that, what I just mentioned, which is this very Augustinian perspective on the fall. We still retain the moral capacity to accomplish the complete natural good, meaning anything you can do by nature you can still do after the fall without grace. Um, you know, any any uh, anything you want to, you could to give any, any kind of example. Remain truthful and never tell a lie your whole life. Uh, practice marital fidelity. Um, honor God in prayer. Okay, all these natural capacities are going to be basically permanently stable despite the loss of initial grace. And in keep, this is the more sort of Sort of amazing claim. In doing so, one can by one's own merits, natural merits, merit eternal life. So you you'll do the natural good you can do. You can be a good person by living natural virtue, and you can be saved. Now, this is a re- these both these positions are re- rejected by the Catholic Church, starting at the Council of Carthage in four eleven, in which the Northern African bishops condemned the theories of Pelagius and Celestius in a series of. Um, Dogmatic bullet points. So Augustine taught, in line with the larger church uh, kind of tendency at the time, that as a fall, as a consequence of the fall and of the ensuing state, as we call the state of original sin, the human being is wounded in nature, and consequently cannot accomplish all our acts of natural goodness, even things we would be able to do by our own power prior to the fall. That in a state of grace would be, you know, incumbent on us as. as pertain to us in view in virtue of our nature and we cannot merit the grace of eternal life consequently we need grace for two reasons we need grace to heal our natural powers which are wounded and we need grace to elevate our natural powers so that we can orient ourselves towards god now the way i'm stating this in case you're just in case some of you are augustine experts i'm giving a very thomistic reading of augustine by talking about nature in augustine because he doesn't talk much about nature and grace he talks more about free will and grace and that's a big difference but i'm because of this as a postcard i'm giving you a tomistic spin and it's a defensible one but it would also be a controversial one okay now he then works out an idea about what grace is okay so what do we what have we got so far besides a little history we need grace to heal our nature and to elevate our nature in view of eternal life that's it how is that going to work Augustine gives a very detailed theory about grace, and he comes up with what you might call categories of grace. Grace is provenient, meaning it has to come and act on you, without you, before you get going, to, to like move you toward God. Right? So God has to initiate your conversion, a person's conversion, not ourselves. It's operative because it works in us before we begin to work. But also, and very importantly, grace is cooperative. Which means when I, or you, or any Christian person cooperate with God in grace, he's not just giving you the initial grace and then seeing how you do. Like, I'll put a little gasoline in the car and then I'll see how you drive it around and if you're very good, I'll give you a little more gasoline. It's, he's he's giving you the car and the gasoline at the same time. So your nature is being given the grace to be moved initially, but also to move itself, which is an interesting question. What would that mean? To give me in my nature the grace to do something actively okay we'll see aquinas will have a very sort of deeper theory of that when we cooperate when, when well actually when grace operates in us maximally we are justified we are rendered friends with god by the infusion of charity into the human heart faith hope and charity and then we can by cooperating with god become sanctified and then we can actually merit growth in grace but as Augustine says, the merits themselves are God's gifts. So we can really do things of our own nature, found the Thomistic Institute at the University of, I don't know what, uh, we gotta pick one, that we haven't gone to yet, you know, Georgia Tech. Anyway, in cooperation with God's grace, you know, I mean, it doesn't have to be, there wouldn't have to be grace, but there might be. So, but then the thing is that you could merit grow, greater growth in grace, and so fidelity to God in the life of theological virtues of faith, and love, can merit or proportion you to augmentation in the order of grace. Now, I just said all those words very quickly, but when you get to the Middle Ages, things like provenient grace, operative grace, cooperative grace, justification, sanctification, and merit, this is absolutely part of the intellectual infrastructure of the medieval university. You have to make sense of this stuff. And everyone, be it Bonaventure, Aquinas, uh, Scotus, Albert, they all have theories on all these categories, like what are these things? How do we understand them? Okay, so it's, this is in the background, and it's the most important background. But then there are two other challenges that are coming Aquinas' way, and one of them is the challenge of anti-Christian Manichaeanism, the famous Cathar movement that the Dominicans were founded to preach to. And these are people who believe that basically uh, human nature, as we experience it now, is a punishment for sin committed by souls Prior to embodiment, we were souls who sinned angelically, and we have fallen into bodies as punishments. And the body is a lower realm of, uh, you might say, um, yeah, c- matter created by a lesser god. It's a dualistic system, so the, you know, the material world is created by a lesser god. These are very strange ideas, but the the idea that the human universe is basically marred by evil um, is not is a kind of generic truth that they held that is still a generic affirmation they held that's still around. And so you get the idea then that human nature is radically depraved in a way that's much stronger than anything you ever hear with Luther or Calvin. The idea that human nature is in some way marred by radical depravity, that everything we are as human uh, embodied beings is problematic. Now that's, a, that's the, you know, Augustine was a Manichaean in his youth before he became a Catholic. And so it's like the far side of Augustinianism you don't want to get into. And Aquinas is seeing it re-emerge around him, and so he needs to emphasize the goodness of nature, the goodness of the human body, the goodness of the soul created by God. Okay, the the basic, the natural integrity of the human being made in the image of God is good, which is a very classic Catholic principle. And then the last thing is he's got the reception of the Aristotelian corpus to deal with, where you find human nature. If you read my note there, explained without reference to grace or the supernatural in this in the sense that they they look at Aristotle and think this man understood a lot of things about human beings without christian revelation and this raises the question whether the human being is best understood by forgetting about grace and revelation entirely and that's not a, a innocent question at the time because Averroes who was a muslim aristotelian had posited that in a certain sense once you have aristotle you can leave behind the quran you graduate from revelation which is like Fairy tale pictures or uh, stained glass windows for the simpletons, and then you get up into philosophy. That's for the grown-ups, and you kick away the ladder of religion. And the the thing is that people read that in the Latin uh, Catholic universities, and you know they didn't come right out and say it, but there were there were gentle you know gentle explorations of the idea that if you had Aristotle, you had enough. Philosophy is greater than theology give up your religious beliefs and enter into the world of grown up rational philosophical understanding, which as we know was reiterated in a massive way in the enlightenment and all kinds of great grandchildren of the enlightenment uh, coexist with us now today. So Aquinas sees this challenge very clearly. So he needs to accept as it were the the true accounts of human nature that he's he's seeing in Aristotle but also show how you might say the Aristotelian man or the Aristotelian human person is open to the world of grace. What are philosophical arguments employed from the Aristotelian within the Aristotelian purview or landscape to argue to the Christian philosopher qua philosopher qua Aristotelian that he or she should be open to the mystery of revelation? Grace receiving grace is reasonable. Being open to revelation is reasonable. Okay, so Aquinas has got all this stuff going on in the background, and and what he does is forge some principles to respond to these challenges that are intriguing and which have, um, you might say, they've had consequence in the Catholic Church enduringly for 800 years. Now, that doesn't, of course, mean that they are doctrinal teachings of the Church. The closest you could get to that on these issues would be some of the teachings of the Council of Trent on grace, are very like Aquinas' teachings, although they were written purposefully vaguely enough that they could be harmonized with Franciscan uh, or Jesuit ideas as well, so that you didn't have well as Franciscan so you didn't have you didn't have an exclusion of one school by another. Because SCOTUS and Aquinas are close enough on habitual grace that you could you could you could put some general things about infused habits of faith, hope and love against Luther and, and Calvin. And you, you you could you could maintain harmony between Dominicans and Franciscans and other schools, Augustinians. And then, uh, but that, the first Vatican Council in the 19th century, the document on faith and reason called De Filius, if you ever read that, which you, you should, you, it's, it's fascinating. It's the church's response to the enlightenment, the ideas I was just referring to, De Filius, late 19th century, Vatican I. That's very Thomistic. So my point is not to say, you know, actually my point is to say what I'm about to present to you is not the Catholic doctrine or something everyone is required to believe or something like that. But it it is in the conversation still after 800 years and many people are in this line of thinking in the church which shows you that it's just an extremely powerful synthesis which I'm only going to allude to. And I basically got it. I've got, you know, a lot of subheadings, but uh, basically four headings. First, what about natural inclinations? So Aquinas thinks that Aristotle... Aquinas is not simply an Aristotelian. That's, That's just not an accurate understanding of him as a medieval philosopher. But he has a doctrine of inclinatio, which is very um influenced by aristotle's understanding that all human all natural powers in living beings are oriented towards given ends the 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 little wolf hunts the little rabbit because he's hungry and he has a natural inclination to nourish himself so as to survive and you you know you can judge him for that but he's acting according to his natural inclinations it's not a moral activity in the human sense of the word but human beings naturally seek truth and do not like to be lied to or make errors and they also naturally seek happiness and they do not like to experience unhappiness and so you have natural powers and inclinations in us that characterize us as the kinds of living beings we are oriented towards certain ends and you can look at the vegetative ends of growth self-repair and reproduction the sensate ends, the animals that are sensate, have the same ends as the vegetative realities, but use their sensate knowledge to pursue self nourishment, self repair, self protection, and reproduction. And then you can look at human beings who perceive and are able to orient toward higher spiritual realities, uh, the aim for truth and the aim for happiness being the most essential core. And then that flourishes in things like friendship, life in community, family life, search for justice in society seeking ultimate explanations and religious understandings of reality. And you'll find that, some version of that in in every human culture. Um, Okay, so Aquinas starts, we're gonna start with the, the big objection. Isn't revelation or grace or any of this Christian talk about things that are effectively unnatural to human beings? Because in our philosophical integrity we should find the truth through our own means, our own natural inclinations, and not need to depend upon the higher realm of grace. And basically what Aquinas argues is that human beings have a natural inclination to desire to see the fullness of the truth and to attain the fullness of happiness, whatever that might be for a human being. And one can argue from this discursively to the natural desire to see God, the first cause. I'm not going to give you the argument here. I give you the place in uh, Summa Theologiae Prima Secundae, first part of the Summa, question 12, article 1, and then a huge treatise on this in the Summa Contra chapter 3. This stuff's all available online. You can just Google it. You can start reading it. It's, it's technical but accessible. But basically what he argues is, The search for truth is the search for causation explanation, causal explanations, and in various domains, like a biologist studies the material organic causality of the human body and how it functions to sustain life and what it consists in. But if you're a metaphysician and you're trying to understand what the big picture is, like what are, what is it to exist? Why are there so many existing things in the world? What are we, where is it all coming from and where is it coming from and where is it all going and does it mean anything? Is it all explained merely by the material cause, just by the material particles that the universe consists in? Or are there um, really formal causes like nature's in human beings or other realities? And is there a transcendent efficient cause of existence, what we could call creator, giving being to all things? Or is that a myth and a fairy tale? Okay. When you get into those ultimate explanations, you can, Aquinas thinks, assemble reasonable arguments that we can explain the world ultimately only by recourse to the mystery of God, the transcendent creator. And that is what gives the intellect ultimate perspective on truth, is to see things in light of the first truth, the first source of explanation. He's talking here qua philosopher. And by the way, this is in Aristotle in its own way. So the question then is, is that philosophical knowledge satisfying to know that there is a God who we don't see directly, but who is somehow known through his effects as the transcendent cause of the universe? And Aquinas thinks you can make a very rigorous argument that for the philosopher, the Aristotelian philosopher, if you like, it is not satisfying only to know that God exists because it is then a natural desire that we should want to know God more perfectly, just as if you know an effect only through the cause, you still want to know the cause itself. I mean, to take a trivial example, you see smoke coming up from the woods and you, you wonder, is that coming from a fire? Is there a forest fire? All right? There's just a natural curiosity, very low-grade curiosity. I wonder if there's a forest fire. And you read about it later on in, on the internet or you see it on the TV, on, on the news, There was a forest fire. You confirm it and there's a mild bit of satisfaction because you know the cause of the effect. Now that's bizarrely you small, know, minor example, but it's natural. This is about a much, much, much bigger thing. Can I know the One who has given me existence, not merely through His effects, but in Himself? And can I find a happiness in knowing God that would be so stable, so enduring, and so perduring that I would be forever blessed, or forever beatified, able to be happy in an in, an, in a permanent way that could never be, um, you know, eradicated. So that's also, I mean, that's a very almost dangerous question to ask, but that's a question Aristotle goes right into. You know, how can, can we have permanent happiness in this world? And in some ways Aristotle says we can't. We may not. You know, so there's a real question there, actually, about whether human beings are the kind of thing that can ever be happy. And Aquinas wants to pursue that real question about human misery and human happiness and figure out if that is related to the the reasonableness of being open to grace as a way of achieving a yet higher permanent beatitude. Okay, so what he's what he's saying then is when the Christian when the Christian philosopher, qua philosopher, appeals to the revelation of the beatific vision of the Holy Trinity and says, I believe that it by grace, it a qua Christian, I believe by grace I can be elevated to see God one day face to face and be forever beatified by seeing the first truth in itself, which is what Christianity promises me, um, I, I think that that's philosophically, you can say qua philosopher, that's Phils if, qua philosopher you can say, I don't know if that's real by the powers of my natural intelligence. I believe it through revelation. But if that's real, I can say qua philosopher, that would be the best outcome possible, that I could actually see God face to face and have eternal happiness with God, All right? So, You might say Aquinas goes to Christian eschatology, that's the study of the last things, eschatology. In Greek, eschaton means last. He goes to the study of of Christian eschatology to answer the the question of what are we living for? What can we hope for? Uh, How can we best be fulfilled? What is the ultimate truth? And of course, in Christian theology, by grace, we can begin to enjoy the presence of the Holy Trinity and be already imperfectly beatified, imperfectly happy, and contemplate God, know God in his truth, mystically, by grace already in this life, which I'll talk a little bit about more tomorrow, like enjoying God in this life and how it is related to our intellectual life. Okay, the second thing is when he treats the consequences of original sin, and he has to look at the Augustinian heritage while still facing the pressures of the Aristotelian, you know, school of thought that our nature's basically integral and the, the kind of Manichaean opponent saying our nature is radically evil. <laughs> so he's he got it, he wants to affirm the goodness of human nature on the one side against the Manichaeans and kind of with the Aristotelians, and also the need for grace, even especially after original sin on the other side with vis-a-vis Augustine. And there's a sort of, you know, you always really in nature and grace stuff in the West, there's always basically two opponents, the Manichaeans to say human nature is bad to which the church says human nature is intrinsically good made in god's image and sees a little bit of manichaeanism in calvin and luther and then and jansenism in the catholic church and modern catholic church and then on the other side anti-pelagianism which is much more our problem which comes down to us through the enlightenment again in a new way which is i can do it all by my natural power i don't need grace and um you know i'm basically healthy i'm okay i don't need help so um on the consequences of original sin, here's some, some of the main bullet points. Aquinas argues, in keeping with the Catholic Church's traditional teaching, that we were created... Well, first of all, this is, I suppose this is a slightly disputed question in the Middle Ages. Were we created in a state of grace? Right. There are medieval theologians who believe we were created just as a natural being, a rational animal, and then eventually invited into the life of grace or very, Bonaventure thinks it's almost immediate, but we were natural beings for a moment, and then we were elevated into life of grace. Aquinas holds that we were created, angels and human beings were created in a state of grace, which is not that significant. That's it, that's actually a keystone to understanding his whole thought, everything in Aquinas, which is that that's to say, Aquinas doesn't think we were ever meant to really live without grace. So even though he's very strong on the distinction of nature and grace grace is not nature nature is not grace our nature has an integrity that integrity is good nature is good on its own but it was never really meant to be without the life of grace so That's a this very that's a fascinating position it's very, it has a lot of consequences so he's, he argues that we were created in a state of grace with certain capacities that that grace initiated us into or permitted in us like faith, hope, and charity, knowing the, knowing the mystery of God personally, knowing God personally, not just philosophically, but that we also had a natural integrity and we could do certain things by nature. When human sin occurred at the beginning and we lost the first human beings, lost friendship with God, that's us say they lost grace, the supernatural virtues of faith, hope, and charity, and the gifts of the holy spirit i'll talk a little bit more about the gifts of the holy spirit tomorrow but basically the the, the kind of key to understanding what christian grace is doing in us now is the theological virtues of faith hope and charity and the gifts of the holy spirit which move us to cooperate with the life of christ in us um they lost all that they were subject to internal disharmonies because the soul became overly, the powers of the soul, the intellect and will became overly subject to the passions. So human beings became overly determined by their passions. That can be through weakness of will and subjection to concupiscence, over subjection to the things of the sensate world, ignorance of the things of the spiritual world. And they became, because they lost a special privilege that was given to the first ancestors of the human race, they were subject to death, became subject to death. Aquinas' views on death are very complicated because he thinks death is in some sense natural for any animal. Uh, Aquinas does not think animal death is a result of the fall. He thinks animal death is totally natural, and he thinks that we are animals. And therefore, there's a way in which without grace, it's natural for us to die. So there is something natural about us dying but that the initial invitation to grace for the human race at the beginning was an invitation to a project of immortality. So, he doesn't think bodily immortality is simply natural. Actually, bodily death is more natural, but we were created in grace so that we could live as a body and a spiritual soul, in, as one being body and spiritual soul, in harmony with God's grace in view of a project of immortality. You might say, Something like the Virgin Mary's assumption into heaven—that would have, you know, there's some kind of project of cooperation of grace in view of eventual glorification. He does think death's unnatural for us, insofar as the soul separated from the body is having to endure separation of body and soul is profoundly unnatural, because so we're meant to—our soul is meant to be in a body. All right, so we're in a precarious state for our clients. We we have a, a naturally mortal soul, the natural mortal body. We have a soul that's meant to be in a body. But we can't procure immortality for ourselves. So we need something else. They lost that, our first ancestors. That's the idea. So now the soul, the spiritual soul, is created in the body but subject to the death, which is a pretty awkward state to be in. And we are subject to weakened natural inclinations to truth and to the moral good, but not radical depravity. So you still have the basic inclinations to the truth and to the moral good. The way this would work out in morality and ethics, that would, I would, I would um, that's to say, the way this would work out in ethics is, we still have basic inclinations to things like honesty, um, the honoring of one's parents, I'm thinking about things in the Ten Commandments, uh, to not, to respect human life, to not take human life, to, uh, you know, people have a natural inclination to marry and to believe in marital fidelity, to understand that it's somehow a natural good, uh, or a natural inclination not to steal, okay respect other people's property. That's in us. We don't, we don't have to reflect too much to know that those are good things. And we kind of know it quasi in a vague instinctual way without much justification, but it's also fragile because we have counter inclinations towards selfishness and we don't have that much clarity about why we're motivated to protect these goods or pursue these goods. And so we can become very clouded in our judgment and we can become very weak in our willing very easily. You know, I'm, talking about, I'm not talking about, you know, we and like all of human society. I'm saying like the human being without grace can be. Um, so what you what you get is a picture then of where there are real consequences, of original sin. Everything is not what well, I'm emphasizing, the negative kind of following the Augustinian realism, so-called Augustinian realism, like we are subject to death. The separation of body and soul is an evil. We have internal disharmonies of our powers, where our, so- our souls are often enslaved to our passions. Um, we don't have friendship with God. We're spiritual orphans. We don't know who God is. We have weakened inclinations to the truth and the moral good, and we can be subject to real confusion. Okay, so I'm trying to paint a sober picture because the the idea that we need to be healed or that we have a problem. I mean, you don't want to be so optimistic that you t- you know you well, that you can't see reality happening in front of you unfolding in front of you. But also, you, you can't promise something um, positive to people that Christ gives, that grace gives. Okay. Now, move on now to the third principle, powers of the soul. Um, the inclination to the natural truth remains in the fallen human being. And Aquinas thinks basically, I mean, in Aquinas' view, the fallen human person still can do with their natural intellect just about anything they could do uh, independently of sin. Meaning, we didn't really lose by original sin. It didn't affect the intellect as deeply as it affects the will. So it's not like if we were capable of mathematics before the fall, we lose the capacity to think mathematically or to take a more... Um, important example or controversial one, were we able to think philosophically about God before and after the fall? I mean, some of you are hanging around in philosophy departments, and you have maybe noticed not everyone is interested in the topic of God as some of the Dominicans in this room are. Now, why is that? Okay. Now it'd be easy to say it was because they haven't received. You could say, well, because they're really smart and dominicans really stupid, or you could say, you know, Christians are just dumb. Maybe we're just the dumb ones, right? We should just grow up and get over our God complex. It's a psychological problem, you know. And you go off and read Freud, figure out if you think that that's true. I don't think so. But um, you know, the 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 other the other thing you could say is well, we have competing interests, and that's more the Thomistic point of view, different interests. But the but the Augustinians in the Middle Ages sometimes posited that it was because their minds were darkened. The atheists have darkened minds. They cannot have access intellectually to higher truths because they have sinned against the light. And so their minds are darkened by sin. Now, the way Aquinas interprets it, he doesn't disagree with that totally, but the way he interprets that is to say that happens primarily through the will. How do you how does this how does the non-believer darken their mind? By freely turning away from the light, not because they don 't have the natural inclination to the truth, but because they don't want to look at it, and then you get you can get the you might say the intellectual industry of generating false claims about moral, ethical, and metaphysical truths right so I mean I have no judgment of the man personally, but if you look at michel foucault's fast you know um, writings on the genealogy of of moral claims, which he, of course, is inspired by Nietzsche and the genealogy of morals. However, earnest and sincere, seen from a Catholic point of view, at least objectively, if Catholic, the Catholic vision of the world is is true, just for the sake of argument, um, that's a very, um, that's a very ingenious way to make up a lot of arguments, to have to avoid having to subject yourself to an objective, ethical structure of reality. And it may be done sincerely, but it would be in some sense um, related to what Aquinas would see as the darkening of the intellect under the influence of the power of the will, wherein the reassignment of preferential loves, the reassignment of preferential loves will affect how you make massive judgments, ma- judgments of massive importance about both theoretical and ethical truth. All right, so if, if you have a, a mm, if your primary emphasis in reality is set on you know, economic uh, and social justice in the imminent frame of this world only, you're going to at least have to take Marx Marx's view of the world. Well, you have the opportunity to take Marx's world the much more seriously than if you have a medieval view that you think there is life after death. Because one of the, pr- the idea of the, you know, religions, the open of the masses, one of the ideas behind that is you have to stop telling people lies that they're going to achieve justice and equality after this life. We have to have it happen. We have to make it happen in the imminent frame of this world. So we need to create a new structure of revolution so that we really change the relationships between people that are unjust in this world and stop putting it off to an imaginary world to come. Okay, so the point is you have different mm, loves and priorities that then affect judgments of the mind and the judgments of the mind can, in turn, inform the, the priorities of the loves, because if you're trained in, for example, classical Marxism in Eastern Germany in 1970, and you are basically accepting of that theoretical framework, it's going to affect what you think you should love and not love. So you still have the natural inclinations of the powers, but you're going to have a lot of um, uh, your your range of intellectual interest and your uh, priorities of loves are going to be deeply affected by the way you ar- arrange in new ways your speculative and, and ethical priorities. And if truths are inconvenient to you as a consequence of original sin, you could show a lot of antipathy toward them. So we can see this in mass in in major ethical debates today, where there's a kind of almost dogmatic or catechetical certitude of non-religious people uh, regarding unquestionable ethical teachings based on a profound personal antipathy to the possibility that in a debate or in this, in a context of study, they could be challenged or find something to be wrong with their viewpoint, which is not a a healthy state of, 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 of reasoning. Um, Okay. What does grace do? It heals the natural inclination of the person toward the natural good. So grace is in principle supposed to make you more of a truth seeker and more of a happiness seeker. One thing that grace does is it gives you a lot more hope that you can find deep happiness, which can make you much more vulnerable and less cynical. And it can it 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 leads your mind into the confidence that the first truth can be known. So the faith itself invites speculative, theoretical thinking about God, because you know I know by faith God's real. Wait, is that philosophically unreasonable? A lot of intelligent people seem to think it is. Oh, I have to deal with this. Um, I have to think about this. It elevates all. It doesn't just heal our inclinations; it also elevates them from within, um, so that we can uh, pr- that we can aim toward higher goods that are properly supernatural. Okay, so this is a very important point. Um, Aquinas basically argues in uh, a text, I think it's in, uh, I think it's in Prima Secundae 85. Did I give you that text? Um, No, it's on the theological virtues. Yeah. Mm. Sorry, just a second. Yeah, I don't know if I gave you this text, but in the the Prima Secundae at at some point, basically, when he writes about Um, the the theological virtues, the necessity of theological virtues, he argues that Christian grace doesn't just heal the powers of the soul, it also elevates them to a good they could never obtain by their own natural power, namely immediate friendship with the Holy Trinity and the possibility of eternal beatitude with God, which we begin to enjoy already in this life, to be friends with God in this life, to know God, and to love God through faith, hope, and charity. These theological virtues then elevate our, our intellect in and will in the line of the search for the truth and the line for the search for happiness. That that's say not against those natural inclinations, but elevates them beyond their own natural range or power into living friendship with God in the darkness of faith, in the poverty of hope, and in the possession of union of love. Okay, so we can live now as friends with God, and in doing that, we're inclined now into this numinous relationship with God in himself. Um, then the, my fourth little book. this is D4, right? The, this gives, this gives, this is not just like occasional. God doesn't just occasionally swoop down, like give you lightning bolts of understanding of who God is, but actually gives you stable powers and dispositions by which you can live in habitual friendship with God. And these are the theological core theological virtues of faith, hope, and charity. Faith is in the intellect. Hope and charity are in the will. What the, in, in this, and Aquinas calls these, and this is novel in him, infused habits. Infused habits of faith, hope, and charity. The infused, ha- like, so let's say you have the habit of uh, mathematical calculus. What would that mean? At least one of you here has a habit of mathematical calculus. That means that you could, uh, on any given occasion, when presented with a reasonably difficult calculus project, of a problem, solve the problem because you have the habitual knowledge to just do it right then. Like, or you have the habitual capacity to play the violin. So I hand you a violin, and it, you make something other than shrieking noises. You make beautiful music come out of the violin, right? That's an active habit. You have that, right? And we're all developing active habits in some way or shape or form, in in studies and in other, in other ways. Well, what faith gives you is a stable disposition that you can, at any given time, believe in Christ and begin to think about the truth of the world in the light of the fullness of the teaching of the Catholic Church. You have access to the mystery. Now, you you don't get this just by your natural powers, but by a gift, typically with baptism, not always. Sometimes it comes before baptism and strengthened by baptism in an adult convert. Sometimes you get it in baptism and you kind of ignore it for a long time and then somehow you get awoken up to it or return to it. You can even lose that habit. You can sin against faith and lose it and then it can be restored. Okay, so that gives you a stable structure for intellectual engagement with God. And then hope and love are oriented toward the possession of God. Love is basically hope is a desire for the ultimate union with the ultimate good of uh, hope. It's also <clears throat> hopes about living unto God in this world in light of everything that is given to us as a means of practical life. So to hope is not just to hope that I will one day come into union with God by love, but that I can make use of all the challenges and opportunities, the joys and sorrows of this life to grow in my relationship with God. So it's, it's got to do a lot with, uh, it's the virtue of, com, of the combatant, because you have to, with hope, you have to fight to begin to continue to desire and hoping, desire God and hope in God in the midst of all circumstances of life and acquire prudence around that, which I'll talk a little bit about more tomorrow. And by love, we can habitually, stably possess God. And that allows us to to engage in acts like devotion to the Holy Trinity through prayer, through um, love, in the sacred liturgy or in private prayer, in in the service of God, in the face of our neighbor, seeing all human beings as somehow the occasions for us to grow in love of God and neighbor. Okay, and then grace provides us with gifts of the Holy Spirit that move us punctually toward a life of union with God in deeper forms of spiritual life. So God can, yeah, what, what, gifts of the Holy Spirit are accentuations of the theological virtues in particular lines that have to do with our human nature. So like the gift of understanding, intellectus in Latin, in Aquinas is Latin is basically a punctual gift of insight. So I might generally have faith, but maybe I'm at Eucharistic Adoration at the Dominion House of Studies on a student retreat, and I'm thinking about the Holy Trinity in a way I haven't thought about the Holy Trinity in a long time or before or whatever, and I'm meditating on a text of, I don't know, Augustine or Aquinas or something. And suddenly I feel in the presence of the Blessed Sacrament this kind of deeper insight uh, regarding the presence of the Father or the presence of the Son or the mystery of the Holy Spirit, or I start to see that mystery intellectually and understand that mystery in a way I haven't before. Not just by natural ingenuity or theological um, uh, progress, but like in a kind of existential way. It's sort of analogous to the way you could have an insight into what human beings are or have a deep insight into who a friend is. Your intellect kind of penetrates and says, oh, wow, you you understand more deeply. It's like a, a moment of intuition. Well, there's a supernatural gift where the Holy Spirit can move you to have these insights, intellectus, or the gift of counsel, where you suddenly realize prudently, like prudentially, what should I do in this situation? I've been praying about it. And the Holy Spirit gives you an insight into how to to live prudently in that case. Oh, I know what I should do. Oh, yeah. Thank you, God. I understand. This could get much more elevated. I mean, what we see in the great saints is that the regime of the gifts of the Holy Spirit are leading them in lives of deep insight into the mystery of the Trinity and deep lives of friendship with God in the mystery of, you know, kind of in receiving counsel. And, you know, there's other gifts of the Holy Spirit we could talk about. Um, the infusion of the habitual grace of faith, hope, and charity causes justification and is the found that's a fringe, stable friendship with God in a state of righteousness leading to eternal life. And it's the foundation for our cooperation with God and then that allows us, if you're living in a life of faith, hope, and charity, habitually, you can begin to live a life of sanctification, of merit, where God never gives you less tomorrow than he gave you today. It's a very important principle. Because sometimes the motivations of all this can seem obscure. You know, I've got really important things to do. I've got to get a job. I've got to finish my classes. I've got to hang out with a lot of people who don't think any of this stuff's real. I've got, uh, you know, there's also something cool on television I mean uh, you know there's a party tonight you know I've got to pick up some beer on the way over there you know there's a lot of other things going on in life but what you do need to realize is that persevering in the theological in the, in the state of grace is not a static thing or at least it shouldn't be if you're leaning into it in the right way because God does uh, develop and grow in us the faith the, the dynamic life of faith hope and charity and will continually give us greater grace if we're faithful to the sacramental life and we're faithful to the to the um you might say the alliance with god or the covenant with god in faith hope and charity and this can lead to final perseverance and beatification which are classic ideas in catholic theology that we are meant to persevere in a state of grace in this life and be beatified in the next and also just finally For Aquinas the life of grace is never an individual enterprise alone we need to be very sensitive to this because we live in a very individualistic post-Protestant culture it was already individualistic in its Protestant demeanor and now it's just kind of a you know highly individualized society influenced by our dear friends Locke and Hobbes as well. And so, yeah, the Christian life is a life of individual responsibility, but it's also a collective enterprise of life with others in the mystical body of the church, aided continually by the sacramental life. And so it's not simply an individual a project of a burden, some individual project of sanctification. It's a collective life of friendship with others, wherein in a collective search for the truth and for happiness, we are um so many different persons made in the image of god living in a communio or a communion of the pursuit of life in the trinity okay so i'm finishing there i didn't sin too greatly by going over and i've finished reading my long postcard to you but i'm going to open the floor for questions how was the infusion of grace
0: different before and after uh, Christ's uh, resurrection
1: and could were um, men and women just could they be? Could they have that life of grace before like, yeah God even? right okay yeah what's changed by Christ okay so believe it or not the great theologians in the high middle ages are rather concerned about the question of the universality of grace in non-Christian peoples in the time before the, t- the coming of Christ in the Old Testament peoples, and there's a lot of different positions. <clears throat> I mean, the range of views is as extraordinary and diverse as one might find in the world today, almost, or at least it as it's different configurations, but it's quite striking. When he was younger and he was writing his commentary on the sentences, Aquinas believed that the Old Testament Jews who were in a state of friendship with God or grace, as indeed, okay, so Christ is anti-Pelagian. So this is the first thing to say. He's anti-Pelagian, so he doesn't think anyone can be saved without grace. You can't just be saved by your natural powers. So he doesn't think that the Old Testament members of the Covenant were all damned. <laughs> and he doesn't think that they were saved by their natural powers, it's not like they were, Pelagian. Pelagianism was okay for them, but not for us. It's not okay for anybody. Don't, friends don't let friends be Pelagians. So, so he so he thinks that those people were saved by grace. In fact, as I'll say in a moment, he thinks everyone who came before the time of Christ who was saved was saved by grace. But in his early period, he wonders if it's like a kind of minimal grace. This was a theory going around. And when he's like 27, 28 years old, he thought maybe, well, they receive a kind of minimal grace that allows them the most modest disposition to union with God, but they don't really achieve high levels of sanctity, except maybe some of the great figures, the Abrahams and David and so forth. But in his mature um, work, it's in the questions on baptism and the end of his life in Summa, he says, he, he notes, he says, I believe something else when I was younger, but now I believe, uh, I, I've come to see that basically, um, you can only be saved by grace Grace involves the infusion of the virtue, the infused virtue of charity, and the infused virtue of charity tends towards sanctification. So those people received the, the virtue of the virtues of faith, hope, and charity, um, and they could achieve degrees of sanctification that were elevated. He says, now in the Christian dispensation after Christ, the the the, the, the disposition of infused grace to sanctification in the people of God will be, A, more intensive and B, more extensive. So more people will receive it and, they, and more people will receive it. there will be more saints, more highly sanctified people. So then you have questions are like, well how, well, how did the Old Testament Jews believe in Christ? If they were saved by faith or were they saved by faith or were they saved by works of law? Paul seems to say not. Okay, so Aquinas argues they were saved by faith like Christians, faith, hope, and love, not just faith, but faith, hope, and love. But they were saved by faith, hope, and love in in their time and place, which means they believed in Christ by way of anticipation, in that they believed in the law, and they believed in the covenant, which promised an, an eventual universal deliverance of the human race. And insofar as they believed in those explicit teachings, they believed implicitly in the Redeemer who was to come. So then he has this idea of what he's called explicit faith and implicit faith. So people can have different degrees of explicitness. For example, I would guess most of you have not reached as explicit a theological understanding of the patrimony of the Catholic Church as Father Dominic Legor myself, because we sit around and study it all the time. And Aquinas says, he asks this question, does that mean that people who have a less explicit faith cannot be saved? He says, well, no, none of us have a perfectly explicit faith. The church is going to declare some things doc- doctrinally in 200 years that none of us know now, or that some of us could get wrong now innocently because we haven't got all the the fullness of the light. Those things are already revealed in the Apostolic, the positive faith, but they've not yet been fully fleshed out conceptually explicitly. So you you do have this problem of like imperfect degrees of knowledge, but it's okay. You can kind of know Christ explicitly, but know the full teaching of Christ only implicitly. You can know that the Jewish, Old Testament Israelite revelation explicitly and therefore know Christ implicitly. And then he says, the ancient uh, non-elect peoples, the people who were not living in, which of course in the vast majority, they didn't know how old and how extensive the, it was, but they, they knew they were the, the majority. The people who are not in the Israelite covenant before the time of Christ, could believe in what he calls the preambula, that God exists, that there is a, sa- a mystery of the sacred, and that the sacred governs our lives through divine providence. So they could have a general and, un- and confused notion of God and divine providence, and it would be possible, now that's not enough, but God's grace could work through that. And, you know, it doesn't say we can know how it all worked and who it affected. There's a lot more one can build on that account and get into micro details about, like, what would it mean for grace to work in a person who's not baptized and who doesn't enjoy the privileges of knowing God through the medium of divine revelation? How can God's grace work in their life? And so you do get kind of Thomistic theories of that in the modern period by people like Charles Journay and Jack Maritain. And uh, it's, it's, a, it's an ongoing theological question.
0: Um, so Father, you spoke about uh, one of the effects of grace being increased vulnerability, yeah. decreased cynicism. Yeah. Um, in a lot of the Psalms, even like in the Vespers, um, it mentions like sort of fabulous uh, implications of divine protection. You know, 10,000 will fall to your right, you will be untouched. Uh, you will crush the scorpion and the serpent, stuff like that. Um, and then we also speak about things like indomitability against, you know, temptations and sort of disappointments. So, when you speak about vulnerability, I'm presuming you mean a sort of openness of the soul to God's activity. Could you speak a little more on that? Exactly what you mean?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, look it's true that grace also makes us much stronger. Grace makes us more vulnerable and it makes us stronger with time. Um, there, When you decrease the horizon of what can be hoped for in human life, like when you accept that intuitively or thematically, intuitively or in an explicit way, you say to yourself, I just have this world to deal with. I just have the the goods and services that are delivered to me by my contemporary culture as the unique horizon of my hope. You can protect yourself in doing that in a sort of stoic way against... um, You diminish whole ranges of expectation and desire in the human heart, and you can then protect yourself against greatness. It's a funny thing to say, but you can protect yourself against greatness because you can just aim for what is mediocre or dominable, uh, not in the sense you meant the word, but like what we can dominate or what we can measure. Um, and in that sense, I think there's a certain settling, existential settling for what is less. And one of the things that grace does is it, it sort of, it, it makes you have to contend with the fact that there are much, there are much greater transcendent goods at stake in life that go beyond the realm of the immediate, of the empirical, uh, and that the virtues of the soul are more important than the outcomes of success, uh, which is already a theme in Greek philosophy, like in the Gorgias, that to be a just person is much more important than to be a successful person, although they don't have to compete necessarily. But the point is that then you acquire new risks, the risk of failing in your relationship with God, the risk of failing in nobility of soul, and cynicism can protect you against taking those risks because it can tell you that th- those are unreasonable degrees of hope and unreasonable degrees of risk. It's a kind of secular stoicism that retreats into the into the realm of imminence and is not. I mean, I think Hume, in a, in a very, I, I won't accuse him of anything psychologically, I think in a very shrewd way, Hume is setting up um, g- strong arguments as he sees them. Uh, with a very powerful mind to delimit natural hope uh, to the realm of the non-religious. And there's a lot of that, I think, in the larger culture. But that being said, yeah, to access to grace in a habitual way and to cooperate vibrantly does also make human beings strong. But you're always still living in view of something beyond this world and you could lose it. And you have to live in a vibrant hope for it. And that's why hope becomes very important. and so a lot of the Christian indomitability has to do a lot with the, the, the fortitude of our hope, which t- needs to be built up.
0: Um, so I understand some of the idea that um, we can reason to things that, uh, to, uh, we can use reason to come the idea that like, certain articles of the faith would be great if it were true, like, so the beatific vision, for instance. Yeah. But it seems that there might be other articles of the faith which are offensive to reason. Yeah. Um, so I'm thinking of like Søren Kierkegaard's training in Christianity where he says that the incarnation is like offensive to reason, or at least has the potential to give rise to offense. Yeah. We can imagine Peter saying, uh, Lord, it's not right that you should suffer these things. And Christ responds, you know, get thee behind me, Satan, um, where it seems that like Peter just saying, look, it, it, you're you're the the king, you're the messiah, it's not fitting that you should suffer these things. And that seems to me to be a reasonable thing to think in a sense, though um, we would say it's false. So uh, where is there some kind of line we can draw where um, it, there are certain parts of the faith which do make sense to reason, certain things which are offensive to reason and we just have to accept by faith? Or do these things always kind of fit nicely
1: together? Okay, so there's no one Catholic answer to that question because there's different schools of thought in the Catholic Church about that question. Um, um, Kierkegaard is writing probably directly against Lessing. It's a Lutheran, inter-Lutheran debate. Lessing is a secularized Lutheran who argues some centuries before that uh, it's offensive to human reason that we should have to believe in a universe in a singular historical event that has saved the whole universal world or affected the whole universal world I wasn't there I can't verify that happened you can tell me there was an incarnation a crucifixion a resurrection but I don't have sufficient evidence and so it doesn't pass the sufficient tests for epistemic warrant that I would have to that I could concede to it and he's coming back and saying at him that God can work in ways that humble human aspirations to knowledge and in through faith give us things we can't get otherwise through universal human reason. So that's a, t- t- as a typical Lutheran move. The Lutherans, of course, often magnify faith, but they often do it by um, diminishing reason or by saying that reason in the fallen world is so under the effect of original sin that it, it tends to mislead us even when it's conquering rightly or conquering accurately knowledge of the world so you have the modern science that thrives on universalism and verification but it's leading you away from real knowledge I mean it's not necessarily contributing to your real knowledge about the nature of the world and in, in the corruption of human nature it could, you could be, just be proud of it but not you know come to know who God is and so you need faith and you know a certain amount of that kind of Lutheran kind of Lutheran version of August Augustine it can be helpful. As a corrective to human pretension, it is true. I think from a Catholic point of view and from a Thomistic point of view. Um, so the, to- the Thomist school tends to always think there's, uh, there's never you don't you don't you can't ever demonstrate the truths of the faith because they're real. It's a gift to know these things. To know God's Trinity is not something we can conquer by our own human ingenuity. It's a gift, but it's not contrary to reason. You know, people who say it's not monotheism or is it one God or the trinity, can't be one God. Okay, we can show that that's not true. But so there's always a possibility of harmony without reduction of one of the, the realm of, of revelation, the mysteries of grace to the realm of reason. And at the same time, the Thomas school will say there can be scandal to the cross of the incarnation because our human reason in its current state cannot perceive this as a good, that like God would be crucified in his human nature, that the one who's the most noble or most ethical would suffer, or that we would be subject to suffering as a way in this life to uh, find union with God. So there can be obscurities, and there can be things that are not easily reconciled, but there aren't things which are just downright irrational or contrary to reason. I think... um Sometimes too, you have different existential temperaments about this. And I also think it depends a little bit on who you studied and, and how well you think their arguments work. I mean, um, Aquinas will go into the crucifixion in the third third part of the, of the Summa Theologiae and talk about, he it, it, it keeps asking, was it suitable? Was it suitable that Christ should die in this way? Was it suitable that this happened? Was it suitable that, that happened? He goes through the Passion. And then some of the things that are like to entail the most suffering, he'll try to argue why this was a fitting manifestation of divine love or an epiphany of divine love. And, you know, as you read it, you think um, this isn't just a scholastic exercise. He's trying to understand the divine wisdom and he's actually leading us into a different kind of deeper logic or deeper um, wisdom and mystery. So I'm more or less convinced at this point that that more maximalist theory of harmony is advantageous, but there are a lot of people in the Catholic Augustinian tradition, like Pascal, uh, who have beautiful views of the primacy of faith. It's analogous to Luther, not or Kierkegaard, not the same, but you know, Pascal has a very strong view of like how you have to really enter into the world of faith uh, and that reason is just befuddled. Um, and then there's a new intelligence of faith. It's a higher thing, but it's, it's not necessarily you know, it's almost like there's two worlds, the man of reason and then there's the man of, 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 of faith and they're like almost two different worlds. I, I've never really bought into that, but I find his vision very intriguing. You know? So it's a conversation in Catholicism.
0: Um, so Father, um, I, I heard that earlier you said about um, infused habits, that um, if we sin that we could sometimes lose those habits but then regain them.
1: Is it okay if you could elaborate on? Yeah. Okay, so the most tip so when we are baptized, it's a doctrine of the faith that we receive faith, hope, and charity and are state and placed in a state of grace and friendship with God by justification. So we uh, to cut to the quick, when you're baptized, you receive faith, hope, and charity, the three infused virtues. How do you how could you possibly lose them? Well, you could fail to use them much. You'd get the, the child, for example, whose parents never took him to church. But at some point, the only way you can lose them is if you sin against them. And what people sin against most typically is charity. And the way we you know, sin against charity is by committing a mortal sin, um, which is not a rare thing. And then what you do if you committed a mortal sin against charity is you go to confession and you confess it. And the grace of the sacrament of confession is that it restores you to a state of grace, meaning it restores the, 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 the infused habit of charity. Confession is the occasion for the new infusion of, of, of these lost virtues. You can also lose hope. Um, I think the most typical way that looks is like the person who residually knows that there's, they still identify in some way as Christian or Catholic, or they, they know something about the faith, but they ceased to practice it. I mean, it, it's not the only way you can lose hope, but it looks like hope is about taking the appropriate means toward union with God. Like a good example, a natural. I'm hoping to be a brain surgeon. I am. Right now, me. Okay. Um, that's that's great, Father. That's great. Um, I bet you can do a lot of stuff like that. You're going to also be a jet pilot? Okay. So, uh, where are you going to medical school? Oh, well, I'm not going to medical school. I'm just hoping to become a brain surgeon, you know, eventually. Did you do organic chemistry in college? Nope, didn't do that. Okay. How are you going to do it without the medical prerequisites? I don't know, but I'm really hoping to become a brain surgeon. Okay. Right. That's a crazy person, right? What Like... Why is that person crazy? Because they don't have they're not taking the means to achieve the end. So it's not real hope. That's where the person who's in organic chemistry at you know uh, University of Michigan is like, I'm studying organic chemistry, it's killing me. Why are you doing this? I want to be a brain surgeon. Whoa, that's hard. Yeah, I hope to be one day. Okay, and then 10 years later, they actually are a brain surgeon. You know, like, wow, they got there. They had to take all those means, okay? So at some point, if you stop hoping it can be a brain surge, you drop out of organic chemistry because you don't hope anymore. Okay. You can drop out of mass because you don't really hope anymore. Okay. So the theological virtue of hope is like taking all the means to union with God. And you, what you can see is that hope often dies in people when they stop the kind of, they stop fighting. They stop going to engage with the means of the sacramental means of the, and, and other things, or they stop witnessing the faith. Now you can lose faith if you just stop cooperating with the act of faith altogether. And that, I think you usually have to consent and then begin to rehabituate your mind to unbelief. So like the ex-Catholic who then writes, I mean, an interesting case, public case of this would be Sir Anthony Kinney, famous analytic philosopher at Oxford, who was a Catholic priest uh, who left the Catholic Church and then he wrote a, a book called A Path From Rome. 'Cause he was echoing the famous book by Hilary Belloc, the convert, A Path to Rome. And so he wrote his book, A Path from Rome, to sort of defend why he left the faith. Kenny's still alive. And he's like written all this stuff, Principled Agnosticism, we can't know anything. Uh, he's a smart guy. But he's like he's a, he's still an Aristotelian and he still likes a lot of things in Aquinas. But he's he basically thinks that uh, those who claim to be atheists and those who claim to be theists all know too much. Okay. And he was knighted by Queen Elizabeth, of course, because he left the Catholic faith. I mean, she didn't do it because he left the Catholic faith. <laughs> he's a great servant of the realm because he served, he did a lot of things at Oxford for years. But the, the point is, it looks like Anthony Kenney may have lost the, the, the virtue of faith. You know, but we can't see it for sure. But he's developed a, a, a very powerful habit to the contrary. This is what a Thomas would call imprudent behavior, not prudent behavior. Don't want to lose faith, hope, or charity. All right, so you, 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 you can, it seems you can lose faith. There's some people who think you can't lose the virtue of faith. I think you can, but you can definitely, yeah, they all get put back. First of all, you can get any of them by asking for them. Right, so one way you can just do, you're know, on the airplane, you know, it's been a little while uh, since you've been practicing Catholic faith, you know, 20 years, and, uh, and the plane's going down. You could just say, God restore me to a state of grace. I would like faith, hope, and charity. And he might give it to you right there. You know, it's called a perfect act of contrition. And if you, it's a grace, you'd have to have provenient grace and operative grace moving you to cooperate, okay? But if it is there, you know, you could be saved. And, um, but that's, you know, the airplane example is not that interesting for us. What's interesting is like, how should we live in real life, like now? And uh, the question is to protect, nurture. Faith, hope, and charity—the the most safe way to do it is habitual confession. Habitual confession is the only way to have practical certitude that you're in a that you're very likely to be in a state of grace. But you can ask for forgiveness of sins and for the fortification of the theological virtues in in any occasion. In fact, it's a good thing to ask for it every day to like grow in faith, hope, and charity. It should be a priority in life.
0: Howdy, Father. So going back to this idea of an act of faith use the example of a person and when they start playing the violin it can sound super bad and as a fellow banjo player like okay. yourself, <laughs> all right <laughs> the banjo you just play and no matter where you start it's just going to sound bad if you don't know how to play but i was curious with the idea of the habitual life of the sacra- the habitual sacramental life is there anything that a man can do when it comes to building up habits that alongside the sacramental life can aid him in his quest
1: for salvation? Yeah, I'm going to talk a little bit more about this tomorrow, but I don't think... um, The the problem is there's... The problem in answering that question is there's so many things we can do. Uh, I mean, I think in terms of building up the habit of faith specifically, um, I do think developing... The best way to do it is actually to, to develop an integrated Catholic intellectual life meaning to study the mystery of the faith theologically, to have an understanding a little bit of, enough of philosophy that you can kind of see the connections between natural reason and supernatural faith, and to uh, study scripture, but not just scripture, but also the kind of reception of scripture in the patristic tradition. I mean, the more we know the kind of Catholic intellectual tradition, um, the more we're living an active life of faith as intellectual people. I mean, if you're an intellectual, the problem is it's hard to get a stable habit of faith if it isn't somehow rooted in your intellectual life. Then there's ways we can nourish our faith through mental prayer, which I'm going to talk about a little bit tomorrow, which is very important for intellectuals because it's something that's beyond the realm of our um, control and cultivation. It's where we make ourselves more passive and receptive to con- to learning about God through through contemplation and love. And um, I think reading scripture in a contemplative way is very helpful, which I'll talk about a little bit tomorrow. Um, devotions are, you know, a lot of people think that in, in, in America, this is not common, but in Europe, a lot of people think that kind of intellectual people are above devotions, that devotions are for the, like simpler people. I mean, devotions are for animals. It's not about how smart you are, how cultivated you are. It's about being an animal. Why do we have devotions? I'm talking about things like the rosary or Stations of the Cross or um, um, devotion to the Sacred Heart. I mean, all these things are, they appeal to our animality. And it's really stupid angelicism to believe that we are not, uh, that we're like too noble to, to take on devotional practices. It's true the rosary is in some ways not the most like intellectually, Complicated prayer—it's simple, but it's very tactile. It has a, du- a sort of rhythmic, uh, a healthy rhythmic spiritual animality to it, where you're you're praying and meditatively on many mysteries as you go about things, and those are also practices for how we can enroot the faith in our material psychological person in a very kind of a normal way. Um, and I think, just the last thing, I think the intellectual virtue of prudence is really important because one of the things you do as a Christian intellectual or a Christian person who has a kind of principled views or is known to have principled views as you get older is you give people advice. And you can't give people advice a as a Christian unless you have achieved some kind of prudence about how to live. And so the more you can develop your practical intellect, like how to be a Christian problem solver, and I'm not talking about like just how to fix the garage door when it won't go up or down, I mean, that's that's great, but I think how do you help people practically figure out how to live a moral life when they're in difficult circumstances or when they face confront natural or moral evils or challenges in human relationships? The more we can give them good advice that's sound based on principle of justice, charity, and mercy, the more we will look like people who have a wisdom in our tradition uh, who can solve problems. You know, so I think that cultivating prudence is also a way of living faith. Okay, thank you. Thank you.